0: You are listening to Monster of the Week with Timothy from ProDM, and this week, I've got my eye on you, and uh uh-oh, better make a constitution save, because that eye is actually a gaze attack, and I'm a basilisk, and also this week's topic. You can find the basilisk on page 23 of the 5th edition monster manual. This is a classic monster in Dungeons and Dragons that in 5th edition is interpreted as a sort of like medium-sized eight-legged lizard. This art here depicts it as having a bunch of like spines on its back, kind of like a stegosaurus. Mechanically, it is one stat block. This is a CR3 monstrosity. Uh, which is pretty basic it's got a bite attack that deals a total of 46 damage half piercing and half poison and then of course its main power is its gaze attack the basilisk can force anyone close enough to it that can see it to make a saving throw or become restrained and if they fail the next saving throw then they become petrified or turned to stone and that's pretty much it so first we're going to talk about the history of the basilisk as it appears across the various editions of dungeons and dragons Now, the basilisk is a classic monster dating all the way back to first edition. It appears in that very first monster manual in 1977, and they are essentially the same monster that they are today. They are eight-legged reptiles, they have a bite attack, and they have a gaze that turns the target to stone. There is a special mention of the reflective concept, which survives to 5th edition, that if a basilisk looks into a mirror, it can turn itself to stone. But there's also this weird note about how they can see onto the ethereal plane, and they can turn people on the ethereal plane into ethereal stone, which is definitely weird, but also kind of, like, rad. Like, imagine, like, a ghost statue. These early source books never fail to make me completely rethink these classic monsters. Now, 2nd edition expanded the basilisk, uh, adding claw attacks and some poison, as well as breaking the monster into several categories, uh, including the greater basilisk that had a sort of a poison breath, but then also the baffling dracolisk, which A is hard to say, and B suggests an origin where it's the cross between an intelligent black dragon and a presumably unintelligent basilisk, which is kind of weird. The dracolisk also has wings— but it couldn't fly for more than, like, a turn because it's too heavy. So it's basically like a a lizard chicken that it can can fly for, like, a turn and then come back down. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of the Dracolisk, if you couldn't tell. Third edition, I think, wisely disposed of the Dracolisk, but it kept the Greater Basilisk. And it also added an Abyssal variety that had, like, a Smite Good ability, which... Okay, weird, feels unnecessary, but okay. Third edition did a lot of that. They loved templates. They loved stapling on, like, this is a celestial unicorn, or this is an abyssal basilisk, right? Like, they seemed to think that made the monsters more interesting, but there were only ever a handful of those templates, and I don't really think an abyssal basilisk is that much more interesting than a regular basilisk. Now, fourth edition went absolutely wild and it had five different varieties of basilisks by the end each with sort of unique eye powers there was like the mesmeric eye basilisk and the poison eye basilisk the wilt eye basilisk which i had to look up but but i think uh, puts you to sleep on a failure and then there's the standard basilisk and then they would do the greater and the abyssal i think were bundled into one Of those, you know, it's a cool idea. I think the mesmeric eye one is the only one I think is actually pretty cool, and we'll talk more about that later. And that brings us to 5th edition, which I think is a pretty good summation of all these different basilisk ideas. If you're going to distill it all down into one monster, I think 5th edition hits all the important notes that you need to. So speaking of, let's next talk about the things we like about the 5th edition basilisk. All right, right off the bat, I gotta say, I like gaze attacks and I like petrification. So I am already immediately predisposed to like the basilisk. I think gaze attacks are a great way to fight the action economy problem that I feel like fifth edition has. It makes every single turn that you're fighting the basilisk important for the character and kind of gives the basilisk an offensive power that it can use on everybody's turn. Every round you fight it, you have to choose either to avert your gaze or to risk that constitution saving throw. And it's not a false choice. It's an interesting choice because if you choose to avert your gaze, there's no chance you're going to turn to stone. But you A, can't see the Basilisk, and B, that means that you are giving an advantage on all of its attack rolls. It is a real choice in that sense because it's not clear which one is stronger, right? You could absolutely get wrecked by a Basilisk in melee if you constantly don't look at it. But by looking at it, you risk turning to stone. I also happen to be a big fan of petrification monsters, because I think petrification, A, is very folkloric. B, is like one of those weird niche things that, that D&D does that other RPGs don't. And C, I love that it exists in this weird, like, mega state between life and death. Like, I like... The idea of a character ending their career or spending some chunk of their career petrified. You know, it's kind of like being cryogenically frozen. I wrote a whole background for our Patreon about someone who's been petrified like Captain America style for years, right? And then is finally unpetrified and a bunch of time has passed. It's so much more interesting than dying, I feel, And obviously there are ways around it. I think the Basilisk does a good job of that, and we'll cover that later. But I generally think petrification monsters are more interesting than monsters that just tried to kill you. Now, the Gaze Attack is a pretty chunky ability, but I do like that they make a point at the very end about the reflection. Again, kind of like we talked with the Banshee. It's very folkloric, but I also like that it specifically flavors it differently for the Basilisk than it might for, say, the Medusa where it says that a basilisk who sees its own reflection thinks it's looking at another basilisk and tries to target it with its gaze attack. Like that's such an an animal thing to do, right? That they don't have self-recognition. I love that. I think that makes it way more fun and it inherently tells you a lot of what you need to know. This is essentially a giant iguana that doesn't really have enough agency to even recognize its own reflection. All of that to say, I think the gaze attack is a cool power. That's one. Number two, the lore, I think, makes some really good points that have been kind of absent from basilisk lore in the past. It talks about why they petrify their prey, like what the purpose is. That they do this cool thing where they turn their prey to stone and then they eat the stone. And there's some kind of an ointment or oil in the basilisk's stomach that turns the stone back to flesh. The petrification is just a means to catch their much faster prey. What's really clever about this is that it not only explains some of the ecology of the monster, which is generally good flavor and could help you kind of dress a dungeon around a basilisk, but it also provides a cool backdoor solution to the problem of a petrified character. They specifically make a point that that oil could be harvested from the basilisk's stomach and then mixed to make an ointment to unpetrify a character. They don't go into too many details about this, but I like the implication that it isn't something that you could just do on your own. You couldn't just, like, rub that on a person. You would have to get it, like, treated in order to do it properly. There is some weird note about how, like, cutting off the basilisk's head renders that useless. I don't know what the—is the conceit you have to take the basilisk alive? I'm not sure. But I I like that they work in a solution. By the time you face a basilisk, CR3, you're probably not walking around with greater restoration. So you kind of need some way to prevent the adventure from just coming to a dead stop if multiple characters are petrified. But I also like that it doesn't provide an immediate solution. It's like this might be a little side quest. We have to go find an alchemist and brew this thing to come rescue our friends. So players might have to sit out for a session or two while they're petrified. It makes it consequential, but not campaign ending. I love that. Great design. And the last positive thing is kind of small, but I do like that their speed is kind of low. They have like 20 foot speed, so it really like lends some flavor to this idea of them as these big, ponderous, cold-blooded reptiles that just kind of like slug around the field like crocodiles and use their petrifying gaze to catch their prey rather than running them down. It is a little weird to me that they have eight legs and they move so slowly, but that's kind of cool too. It's sort of weird and breaks what you expect, right, from the monster. Great, and those are the three things I like about the Basilisk. Overall, I think it's a pretty good monster, and I actually had some difficulty brainstorming some downsides, but we will cover those next. So like I mentioned, I found it kind of difficult to find big drawbacks in the way the Basilisk is designed. So rather than getting like three specific points, I want to talk about the Basilisk's, I think, kind of fatal flaw. And I think as a monster, the 5th edition Basilisk is just a little too simple. It's basically like a walking gaze attack, and that's it. And so to me, it feels like that that stuff really, really works well. I think the gaze is well written. I think it's a fun power. I like that it's gaze and it's petrification, like we talked about. But in terms of actually running the monster, I feel like there's almost nothing to do. Like, so much of the stat block here is devoted to specific wording on how the gaze works that all it can do besides that is bite you for a little bit of damage. I don't ever want to run one, if that makes sense. I don't get excited looking at it. I'm not like, ooh, I can't wait to see how this works in play. I feel like... Not only is it too simple mechanically in that way, but it's also a little too simple lore-wise. There's some talk in here about them being, like, domesticated, but otherwise, I'm not really sure in what context I would use a basilisk. You know, beyond just, like, I need a random monster to live in this cave. So I don't think it's so much that there are, like, three bullet points that these are the three things that, you know, could use improvement with the basilisk. I think just in general, it is a little too simple. I would have loved maybe one more page and maybe a couple of different types of basilisk or something like that. We don't have to go full 4th edition and do all these different versions, but some more suggestion of the basilisk's place in the world or other ways to use basilisks in encounters. I think it works on its own, but I don't get excited when I see it. I can't think of an adventure or an encounter that would really make me want to use a basilisk beyond just a generic dungeon denizen. I think in general, it's sort of too simple to engage me as a dungeon master. So the kind of inherent question suggested by that then is, what do we do to make that more exciting? And it's tricky because, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with the basilisk's design. I think it's more the pitch, the premise, the promise of the basilisk, essentially. So I would maybe make it... So basic stuff, I think it just having a bite makes it feel a little bit underwhelming in terms of what it can do, like because it's slow and because, you know, the gaze attack requires people to look at it. It's very easy for me. I could easily see someone just running away from the basilisk. So I might want to spruce up its combat power a little bit. Multi attack is the first thing that occurs to me. And I feel like claws get used all the time and claws could definitely make sense For a basilisk, if it's got eight legs, the instinct might be to make it a little bit more interesting and do like a tail swipe. Again, I was looking at the art and it really reminded me of like a stegosaurus. And I think a couple of spines on the end of the tail could be cool. And it could be another way to deliver some piercing and some poison potentially too without just resorting to claws for slashing. And that brings me to the poison. I kind of think there's something interesting about the idea of making the poison more than merely, you know, you take a little bit of poison damage. I wonder if there's more of an evolutionary angle we can take with this poison. Why does this poison exist? If the basilisk's main power is its gaze attack, the poison kind of feels like a weird addendum. It's a lizard. Lizards are reptiles. Reptiles sometimes have poison. Right? How do we rope this poison concept into the gaze attack and make it feel like a cohesive thing? So what if we sacrifice a little bit of poison damage? What if it's like, you know, the, the bite for 2d6 piercing and 1d6 poison, and also the target has to make a constitution saving throw? If they fail that constitution saving throw, then they are poisoned. While poisoned, they cannot avert their gaze from the basilisk. Right? It's some kind of psychotropic that makes you sort of want to look at the basilisk. So it's this idea that it can hit you with this, right? And then that makes you sort of stare at it. If you And you could extend that to all things. So if we add in the, the tail swipe, it could be lining the, the spikes of the tail. It could be in the bite. You could even give the basilisk like a poison spray, kind of like the keg with acid, right? The idea that it would spit like a cobra and hit you with this poison if someone is averting their gaze, so, yeah, you know, it could walk up and bite you. But I love the idea that it has some means to get you to look at it because that's what it really wants you to do. And you could have some thing where if you succeed on the Constitution save, then you're immune to the effects of the poison for however long. Right. But I like the idea that it has one little trick in its up its sleeve to try to get you to look at it. Right. And then lastly, I kind of like the mesmeric gaze. I don't want to go so far as to say, like, here's another species of basilisk that just makes you look at stuff, right? But what could be cool, you could do the poison angle, or the other option is you could make sort of like a juvenile basilisk or a hatchling or something. That, and I think that was kind of the implication of the fourth edition basilisk is that they were like different subspecies or different parts of the life cycle. Imagine a basilisk hatchling whose eyes aren't quite as deadly yet. So maybe they could, it could be like a poison gaze or a mesmeric gaze, and you could do like a mother basilisk with her, you know, nest of little basilisk hatchlings, and they all get you to look, right? with their mesmeric gaze, and then the mother basilisk can get you with the petrifying gaze. So I think a little bit of monster ecology and maybe a little bit more context could make the basilisk more interesting. But like I say, I think overall, the CR3 gaze attack, bite attack basilisk works great. I don't think it's in desperate need of a rework, but I do wish it was a little bit more fun to play and to run. And that's it. That's our episode. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week with another big favorite monster of mine, and that's the Behir. I have a special place in my heart for Bahir, so We will talk about that next week. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Avert your eyes, and happy adventures. Monster of the Week is a Pro-DM production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at XPWebSeries. And if you like the show, please consider joining our Patreon campaign. For $1 a month, you get access not only to early episodes of this show, but also to brand new homebrew monsters. You can find us at patreon.com slash XPWebSeries. That's the letters X-P-WebSeries. The music used in this episode was Rainbow Ride and Waves by Azure Flux, licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike Creative Commons license. Check out their work at azureflux.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening!